through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. Tonight's Twilight Zone distinguishes itself as a landmark episode for a couple of reasons. It is the point at which the show comes into triple figures with episode 100, but it's also the point where a name that has been conspicuously absent finally comes into the fold. It is one of those moments that should be monumental, like two great actors finally sharing the screen together, or the reformation of a loved but long disbanded rock band who finally get together again on stage. By 1963, Ray Bradbury was a science fiction powerhouse. He had over 50 short stories published, which led to over 10 published collections of his work, and novels. There had been numerous television and radio adaptations, including five episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. His story The Foghorn had been adapted into the film The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, which wasn't the first giant monster movie, but it is interesting in its timing when we frame it against the first Godzilla film that would come out of Japan a year later. So Ray Bradbury and Rod Serling together at last seems to be one of those moments that should have been written in the stars. The literary leviathan Ray Bradbury and the television titan Rod Serling. Surely now, Bradbury would join the likes of Richard Matheson and Charles Beaumont in the Twilight Zone stable. Well, tonight's episode starts out well enough. A beautiful American neighborhood and an emotionally charged conversation between a widower, George Rogers, and his children's aunt about how his three children, Tom, Anne, and Karen, are coping with the death of their mother. Certainly a situation that is ripe for examination by the Twilight Zone, and just waiting for that element of the unusual to be dropped into it, this very relatable everyday occurrence, so we can sit back and see what happens. Dad? Hmm? Listen to this. I sing the body electric. What does that mean? Sing the body electric is the motto of facsimile limited. I sing the body electric? Let me see that, Tom. Inventors and makers of electrical shadows, effigies, mimics, mannequins, Antochini. To parents who worry about inadequate nurses in schools, who are concerned with the moral and social development of their children, we have perfected an electronic data processing system. An electric... Well, what does that mean, Daddy? 
Electronic data processing system in the shape of an elderly woman built. A woman? Yeah, sort of a robot. A woman built with precision, with the incredible ability of giving loving supervision to your family. Tonight we're going to walk through a doorway to examine the story where those stars did align, where the two giants of their mediums did come together. But we'll also examine the story behind the story and try to understand that why when we walk through that doorway, it slams shut behind us, never to be opened again. Tonight on the Twilight Zone podcast, Sailing, Bradbury, and the Body Electric. They make a fairly convincing pitch here. It doesn't seem possible, though, to find a woman who must be ten times better than mother in order to seem half as good. Except, of course, in the Twilight Zone. First broadcast on the 18th of May 1962, written by Ray Bradbury and directed by William Claxton and James Sheldon. So Rod Sailing's opening narration is very short and to the point this time round, and he delivers it with a certain amount of good humour, the twinkle in the eye is very evident. And there's been some effort made to make it appear like he's here in the scene, but it's clearly a whip pan and a put together set. But what I do love is that there is a certain level of interactivity, Sailing is sitting back at the desk smoking a cigarette and reading the magazine that the family have just been reading in the scene. So not quite full marks on this one, but certainly some things to like in it. Now you will notice that I said the names of two directors there, William Claxton and James Sheldon. And The Twilight Zone was generally a show directed by one person, but if we look back at the history of it, the times when there have been two directors, it's usually because the episode's road to the screen has been a rocky one. Think the mighty Casey where the death of an actor meant that the majority of it needed to be reshot, or Buster Keaton's episode Once Upon a Time when they were reshooting scenes just to try and make it work. And this episode continues that trend because it does have some troubles of its own. So the first director to work on it was James Sheldon and he was an experienced Twilight Zone director with The Whole Truth, A Penny For Your Thoughts, Long Distance Call, It's A Good Life, Still Valley and now this, I Sing The Body Electric. So this is his sixth and final Twilight Zone. And the second director was William Claxton and he too is an experienced Twilight Zone director and this is the last of four Twilight Zones that he helmed, the first three being The Last Flight, The Jungle, and The Little People. So two Twilight Zone directors bowing out on this one. Quite why there are two Twilight Zone directors, we'll come back to that later on. So before we get to our episode proper, let's start to build the picture of the relationship between Rod Serling and Ray Bradbury, and to help do this, I called upon an old friend of the show whose research into this very subject 
forms a chapter in her book, Unknown Sailing, an Episodic History. So welcome back to the show, Amy Boyle-Johnston. Amy, thank you so much for joining me today. Of course, it's my pleasure. We're here to talk about uh, the relationship between Rod Sailing and Ray Bradbury. And from your book, Unknown Sailing, I, I know it's something that you have some experience with. You, you researched it a lot for the book. Now, they were friends at one point. So could you just briefly tell us how they came to know each other and what that early relationship was like? That is only known from Bradbury's point of view. Mm-hmm. Certainly did not leave any um, documents about that. Um, according to Bradbury, Sterling had this idea for a series, and so he approached Ray Bradbury and supposedly said, I don't know what I'm doing, and Bradbury said, come on over to my house, I'll introduce you to a bunch of writers. That seems not so true. Okay. Sterling was well aware of these writers ahead of time and was trying to develop the series as back in 1957. Okay. So you think maybe Ray is um, exaggerating things to a degree? I think Bradbury is making it look as if he had more of an influence than he did. I see. Sterling knew of these writers, and Sterling had the idea for the show long before he had ever met Ray Bradbury. So at this time when Rod Sailing is developing the Twilight Zone, what was Ray Bradbury up to? Bradbury was creating his own TV production with Kirk Douglas, Burnup Productions, and it was going to be called Report from Space. In fact, the exact name was Burnup Production presents Ray Bradbury's Report from Space. Bradbury was going to have his own science fiction program for network TV. And so that fell through in March of 59, the rights returned, and Bradbury had been trying to sell the program for two years. So when Bradbury's program had failed, Sterling's was now was going to go on to the air. In the documentary Charles Beaumont, The Short Life of Twilight Zone's Magic Man by Jason and Sonny Brock, Bradbury gives an account of Rod Serling coming to him saying, I want to make a science fiction television show, but I don't know what I'm doing. And Bradbury says to get in contact with Charles Beaumont and Richard Matheson and get them to write for him. And then he goes on to say that he will maybe throw in some episodes for him too. And in Mark Zickrey's updated Twilight Zone companion, he recounts this story too. Now, it's hard to say for definite whether this conversation actually happened like that. As Amy says, we only have Ray Bradbury's word for it. And if it did actually happen, I suppose in my head, sailing saying, I want to make this show and I don't know what I'm doing, would more likely be his trademark humility rather than him having really no idea what he's doing. He often had this very self-depreciating sense of humour, so it is possible that Bradbury maybe gave him some pointers here and there, or they at least had a conversation about it, because Ray Bradbury was a mentor to several writers of that day. Richard Matheson once wrote of him in a Charles Beaumont collection, The Magic Man. It was Ray who helped both Chuck and myself in the initial steps of our writing careers, 
as he had helped others. I was living in Brooklyn at the time, just graduated from college, and Ray was highly generous in his correspondence and encouragement. It meant a good deal to me. Chuck, fortunate enough to be living in Los Angeles, had more personal contact with Ray, and accordingly enjoyed an even closer communication and a greater proportion of encouragement and inspiration. I know that it meant a good deal to him as well. Now clearly in the Charles Beaumont documentary that I just mentioned, Bradbury's tone in the interview is one of animosity towards Rod Serling. And he then goes on to say in not so many words that Serling went Hollywood, that his success changed him and went to his head. Now it's tough to sit and listen to that as a Rod Serling fan because we're only really getting one side of the story and Rod Serling isn't there to defend himself. Although we will hear the occasional comment from Serling about the situation that he made when he was alive. Let's now focus on when they were friends and Ray Bradbury was potentially submitting stories to the Twilight Zone. Now I know that Bradbury submitted three stories to the Twilight Zone. I Sing the Body Electric is one of them. Have you seen any any documentation um, to do with the other two or have you actually seen those submissions? I've seen a rough treatment of um, the tigers. Mm -hmm. And the problem with Bradbury, which is also Bradbury's strength, is Bradbury has a hard time being interpreted on screen. Right. And Serling accepted that, and that doesn't make it easy for TV. But Here Be the Tigers was more of an intellectual and emotional script than it was verbal. In the Twilight Zone Companion, Mark Zickery writes this about one of those never-produced Ray Bradbury scripts. And he says, Here There Be Tigers concerns an expedition of space explorers that lands on a planet so idyllic that it seems impossible. The grass is short and smells newly mown. Streams are filled with white wine. Fish jump out of cold springs into hot springs and cook right there before your eyes. Winds gently lift you so that you can fly like a bird. The men quickly realize that the entire planet is a single conscious entity, one willing to supply their slightest whim simply in return for kind treatment. The men take this in stride, enjoying the first class treatment, all except Chatterton, the mineralogist, whom the men call Chat. He's wary of the planet and doesn't trust it. He warns the others saying, to quote a map I saw once in medieval history, here there be tigers. When you're all asleep, the tigers and cannibals will show up. Finally, Chatterton attacks the planet with a huge drill mounted on a tractor. The planet swallows the tractor in a tar pit, then summons up a tiger that kills Chatterton. The rest of the men hurriedly board their ship, all but one who elects to remain behind. From space, the explorers see the planet erupt in volcanoes, avalanches, and lightning storms, but this is only an illusion for their benefit. On the surface, the planet is serene. With a running start, the lone crewman leaps into the air and flies away from the camera, over the horizon, 
to where the distant voices of laughing women can be heard. And apparently the other story that was purchased to potentially be produced was called A Miracle of Rare Device. And Zikri says it concerns two likeable tramps who attempt to homestead a mirage that assumes the appearance of any city the person looking at it has most wanted to visit. So although the Twilight Zone would often visit alien planets, I think from the sound of it, Here There Be Tigers especially, does sound very ambitious for a 23 minute Twilight Zone. But at this point, we are about 6 minutes into tonight's episode, I Sing The Body Electric, and I will keep mentioning the time, and I'll explain why later on. So the family get to Facsimile Limited, where they meet a salesman played by Vaughan Taylor. Won't you come in please? We've been expecting you. Now Vaughan Taylor is a five-time Twilight Zone player, and we've seen him already in Time Enough at Last and Still Valley, and we'll see him again in The Incredible World of Horace Ford, and the self-improvement of Salvador Ross. If I choose a favourite scene from this episode, I think it's this one. I love the way that George and the children step into the building and it is just complete blackness with the silhouette of the doorway behind them. And when that disappears, we are left with the character of the salesman played by Vaughan Taylor. And he has this wonderful quality to him that's reminiscent of a Walt Disney or a Willy Wonka from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the inventor who just loves his own inventions and loves to see other people enjoying his inventions, so he fills everything with a real sense of wonder. And he shows them around, reveling in their wonder and disbelief at what they're seeing. So we get shown around this completely pitch black room and the blackness of it really does look good on today's high-definition versions of the Twilight Zone. These are just the bits and pieces. Just the eyes, the lips, the limbs from which you will choose the elements which will become your... Uh... Grandmother? You mean we get to pick out the color of eyes she'll have? And how tall? Exactly. You will pick them out. And put them down this chute. From where they will be conveyed to our factory. I think she should have blue eyes. These eyes here. No, these. They're like the brown Aggies I play marbles with. So while the children choose the parts of their electric grandmother, let's quickly meet the Rogers family. George Rogers is played by David White and he's joining us for his second and last Twilight Zone role. And we've previously seen him in a world of difference. Now I won't go into his bio too much, but he's one of those faces that we all know from something. And he certainly was one of our very hard-working actors of the day. And while he has 129 listed credits on IMDb, which is a respectable number, when you factor into that things like his role of Larry Tate in Bewitched, which went on for 191 episodes, then he really does start to earn his hard-working actor badge. But for this comic book fan, the thing that I'll always remember him for is his role as J. Jonah Jameson in the 1970s Nicholas Hammond Spider-Man television series. 
Now the three Rogers children, I will just summarise their bios briefly, but there are certainly some interesting details here. So Tom Rogers was played by Charles Herbert and he was a pretty successful child actor of that time. He was about 14 years old here and he had a number of credits to his name that would put some adults to shame by this point. But he would only go on to work for another six years as a screen actor. The transition from adorable Moppet to awkward teen can be a difficult one for some actors and apparently this was the case for Charles Herbert. And when the roles dried up in the late 50s, he had little to show financially for his numerous television and movie roles, with most of his money having gone to his parents. So Charles unfortunately had problems with substance abuse later in life which took several years to get on top of. And apparently he did become clean in 2005 and would occasionally hit the science fiction convention circuit, but he died too young of a heart attack at the age of 67 in 2015. Now Karen Rogers was played by Dana Dillaway and she would have been about 12 at this point and while her acting career did span 22 years between 1956 and 1978, she only has a modest 16 credits, although one of them is very significant to us Twilight Zone fans, because she played Maggie Polanski in the second Twilight Zone episode, One for the Angels. And finally, Anne Rogers was played by Veronica Cartwright, who has certainly gone on to be a successful actor from here on in. She's an English actor and would have been about 13 at this point, and she was in several shows of the time, Leave it to Beaver, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and so on. But also seeded into her television credits were roles in films like Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds, and since then, she has truly become a hard-working actor of several generations, with 150 credits to her name and counting, and she's still working to this day and possibly one of her most famous roles was Lambert in Ridley Scott's Alien, where she famously got splattered with John Hurt's blood when the creature burst out of his chest. I can win any game of marbles with those. And if she had eyes like these, gosh. Oh, she only had long hair. So with the component parts chosen, why don't we wait for the factory to do their work and get back to the story behind the story. We've heard that Ray Bradbury submitted three stories to the Twilight Zone, but only one was made. So was this the reason that the relationship between him and Rod Serling soured? Well, according to Ray Bradbury, there was more to it than that. In your book, you examine the accusations of plagiarism that Bradbury makes against Rod Serling. So what was he basing these accusations on? Was it particular stories? It was, and Bradbury's story of plagiarism has changed. Well, it, it no longer changes since Bradbury's first one. 
He accused him of plagiarism in the 60s and then again later in his life when his authorized biography came out, he had changed the accusations to a different story. So Bradbury's story of plagiarism had more, so it's important to recognize that. Yeah. He had accused him later in life that he had taken, early in life, he had taken walking distance, mm. which is a very personal and almost autobiographical story that certainly had come up when he was back in Binghamton on a family vacation. He also made some accusations about where is everybody, didn't he? Yes. That was the one where he was comparing it to the guy on Mars who who gets who hooks up with a woman by phone. So you know, you you examined these accusations. What what did you find? Serling wrote two letters at this time in in let me find the exact date in December 1960. Serling wrote two letters. One is to Beaumont, Charles Beaumont, mm. dated December 5th. And one is Ray Bradbury. And the letter to Beaumont is much longer. He says, Dear Chuck. And he laid out the accusations in more detail. And what happened was, it's almost like a snowballing, an avalanche effect of plagiarism had then been heaped. What comes out of this is that there was plagiarism of Bradbury, but not by Rod Serling, but actually George Clayton Johnson. Oh, really? And when I pointed out to George Clayton Johnson, and I interviewed him the same week that I interviewed Ray Bradbury, and Ray Bradbury was at his home, and George Clayton Johnson, we went out to a restaurant and had the patio to ourselves for three hours. Mm. George Clayton Johnson and Ray Bradbury knew that this had happened, and neither man cared about it. They both said that was long ago. Wow. And they were really good friends. So it was shocking to me that there was no anger over that. And then, and then you put that against how he speaks about sailing. That is, that is very shocking. Yes, and in the new in the authorized biography of Ray Bradbury called the Bradbury Chronicles, and it's written by Sam Weller. Yeah, I take Sam Weller to task. Sam Weller interviewed Bradbury at his home over a period of a year. He refers to Ray Bradbury as Ray, and he never even went two hours north of his of Sam Weller's home in Chicago and goes up to Madison, Wisconsin, where he would have found the letters about plagiarism. Mm. And according to Ray Bradbury, Serling was supposedly lying in bed one night and looked over at his wife and they they talked about the similarities of a story. It was Mrs. Serling who pointed out the similarities to Rod and said, Oh look and when I told Mrs. Sterling about this, she said, how would he know what I said in bed? And so you have Sam Waller repeating a story that Ray Bradbury has said of something that Carol Sterling said with no paper trail. Now, in that book as well, um, he speaks about a phone call between Sailing and Bradbury in which Sailing, at least in part, admits to Bradbury taking inspiration from his stories and and the way they tell it it's as if he admits the plagiarism what are your thoughts about that phone call certainly loved writing letters which i'm grateful for mm. um, and it seemed unlikely that he would have done that without putting something in writing certainly documented his entire professional career in correspondence yeah and he loved sending 
letters of thank you. He loves sending letters to acknowledge other writers in particular. Mm-hmm. So it seems odd that he wouldn't do that. It seems to me as well, if indeed there was a phone call, you know, sailing is has a certain amount of humility. And I could imagine him saying something like, I'm sorry you feel that way, Ray, or especially when you see the tone of his letter. I just can't imagine him admitting it and saying sorry in, in that way. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And Sterling was a champion for other writers. As Earl Hanner told me in an interview, Sterling gave other writers dignity. He gave television writers dignity. Mm. So Sterling wanted to lift up as many writers as he could. He considered that one of his purposes of being the producer of the TV show was acknowledging the writers that came with him. And when he held up even one of his Emmys, he said, boys will have to carve these. I'm paraphrasing, but uh-huh. he truly believed that other writers made the show, not just his own words. So one of the stories that Ray Bradbury was basing his claim of plagiarism on was the Twilight Zone's pilot episode, Where Is Everybody? And he was saying that it was plagiarized from one of his stories, which was called The Silent Towns, which was from the Martian Chronicles. Some commentators have mentioned that Ray Bradbury actually saw Where Is Everybody and was very complimentary about it at the time. But why don't we just check out the opening scenes of The Silent Towns to see whether there is any similarity. The Silent Towns by Ray Bradbury There was a little white silent town on the edge of the dead Martian Sea. The town was empty. No one moved in it. Lonely lights burned in the stores all day. The shop doors were wide, as if people had run off without using their keys. Magazines brought from Earth on a silver rocket a month before fluttered untouched, burning brown, on wire racks fronting the silent drugstores. The town was dead. Its beds were empty and cold. The only sound was the power hum of electric lines and dynamos, still alive all by themselves. Water ran in forgotten bathtubs, poured out into living rooms, onto porches, and down through little garden plots to feed neglected flowers. In the dark theatres, gum under the many seats began to harden, with tooth impressions still in it. Across town was a rocket port. You could still smell the hard scorched smell when the last rocket blasted off, when it went back to Earth. If you dropped a dime in the telescope and pointed it at Earth, perhaps you could see the big war happening there. Perhaps you could see New York explode. Maybe London could be seen, covered with a new kind of fog. Perhaps then, it might be understood why this small Martian town is abandoned. How quick was the evacuation? Walk in any store, bang the no-sale key, Castro's jump out, all bright and jingly with coins. That war on Earth must be very bad. Along the empty avenues of this town now whistling softly, kicking a tin can ahead of him in deepest concentration, came a tall thin man, 
His eyes glowed with a dark, quiet look of loneliness. He moved his bony hands in his pockets, which were tinkling with new dimes. Occasionally, he tossed a dime to the ground. He laughed temperately doing this and walked on, sprinkling bright dimes everywhere. His name was Walter Grip. He had a place of mine and a remote shack far up the Blue Martian Hills, and he walked to town every two weeks to see if he could marry a quiet and intelligent woman. Over the years, he had always returned to his shack, alone and disappointed. A week ago, arriving in town, he had found it this way. So perhaps on the surface you can see that where is everybody and the silent towns are both based on quiet, deserted towns. But to be honest, that's pretty much where the similarity ends. Clearly in the Twilight Zone one, the setting is a complete mystery. The main character doesn't know who he is, he doesn't know where he is, and we don't know those things either. And when the truth is revealed, it turns out that he was never really there at all. Now in the silent towns, it's a town that's been evacuated and a miner from the hills was clearly not part of that evacuation. And while both stories concern themselves with solitude and loneliness to a degree, as it goes on, Ray Bradbury's tale becomes a lot more humorous because the main character does find a woman in a far-off town and they speak by phone initially, but then when they find each other, he finds them to be completely incompatible. And while Rod Sailing's tale is concerning itself with people's need for companionship and how that's how we're really made, Ray Bradbury's is actually a riff on the saying, I wouldn't marry you, if you were the last man on earth, but the genders are flipped because it's a case of the male protagonist meeting this woman and then pretty much saying that he wouldn't marry her even though she's the last woman on Mars. And it does become a story about saying that sometimes being alone doesn't necessarily mean that you are lonely. Now, The Silent Towns was actually adapted for Ray Bradbury Theatre, so as an exercise, why not go and check out Where Is Everybody and then check out The Silent Towns on Ray Bradbury Theatre and see how similar they really are. And if we are comparing stories, I would say that there are more similarities with this story, the story of this fantastical woman, this nanny, this grandmother, turning up and having a profound effect on the life of this family, especially the children, with another very similar tale of that kind, Mary Poppins. Now at this point, Mary Poppins, the Disney movie hadn't been made, but the Mary Poppins books had been made for several years. Change Mary Poppins into a robot and you have I Sing the Body Electric. You must be Tom and Karen, and that's Anne, of course. Who are you? Give me any name. Melissa, Lavinia, Milvina. What would you like? Grandma. 
say it a few times, it'll sound fine. I know you're thinking I'm not a robot, but I'll prove it. Here, wind me up. A key. You don't wind robots up, they run electricity. <laughs> So here is our electric grandmother. Now this story was an original submission to The Twilight Zone by Ray Bradbury, and I mean that it wasn't based on an existing short story. However, after the episode was made, Bradbury did write the story in prose form, and it originally appeared in McCall's magazine in 1969 but then it became the title story in a Ray Bradbury collection, also in 1969. And in the prose version, the electric grandmother's entrance has a lot more to it. At that instant, I repeat, the clouds above our house opened wide and let forth a helicopter-like Apollo driving his chariot across mythological skies. And the Apollo machine swam down on its own summer breeze, wafting hot winds to cool, reweaving our hair, smartening our eyebrows, applauding our pant legs against our shins, making a flag of Agatha's hair on the porch, and thus settled like a vast frenzied hibiscus on our lawn, the helicopter slid wide a bottom drawer, and deposited upon the grass a parcel of largish size, no sooner having laid same, than the vehicle, with not so much as a God bless or farewell, sank straight up, disturbed the calm air with a mad ten thousand flourishes, and then, like a sky-born dervish, tilted and fell off to be mad some other place. Timothy and I stood riven for a long moment looking at the packing case and then we saw the crowbar taped to the top of the raw pine lid and seized it and began to pry and creak and squeal the boards off one by one and as we did this I saw Agatha sneak up to watch and I thought, thank you God, thank you that Agatha never saw a coffin when mother went away. No box, no cemetery, no earth, just words in a big church. No box, no box like this. The last pine plank fell away. Timothy and I gasped. Agatha between us now gasped too. For inside the immense raw package was the most beautiful idea anyone ever dreamt and built. Inside was the perfect gift for any child, from seven to seventy-seven. We stopped our breaths. We let them out in cries of delight and adoration. Inside the open box was a mummy, or, first anyway, a mummy case, a sarcophagus. I don't know if this entrance for the electric grandmother was ever suggested for the Twilight Zone, but you can imagine why they opted for something a little quicker in a 25 minute long episode. So while grandmother meets the children, why don't we 
the grandmother. Our robot grandmother is played by Josephine Hutchinson, and she was born in 1903, so would have been just shy of 60 at this point. And when we look at her young life, it is as geared towards becoming an actor as it could get. And she said, my mother brought me up with the idea that someday I would go on the stage. I never really thought of doing anything else. So go on to the stage she did, and she won acclaim as Alice in Alice in Wonderland, among other things. And she was married to stage director Robert Bell in 1924, and joined the Eva Le Gallienne Reparatory Theatre. And this association with Eva resulted in an affair between the two women, which ended Josephine's marriage in 1930. And while the romance with Eva eventually ended too, they still remained close for many years. And in 1934, Josephine became a contract actor with Warner Brothers. And while she had been an extra before in 1917, her actual screen credited debut came in the 1934 film Happiness Ahead. And she became a steady movie actor from that point on, and of particular note for me on her resume is her role as Elsa von Frankenstein in Son of Frankenstein in 1939. But when she was dropped by Warner Brothers in the early 40s, her film career was put on hold for five years and she instead began teaching acting. Now of course she did return to the screen, initially in movies, but then in the mid-1950s she began to work in television, with roles in the Pepsi-Cola Playhouse. And as time went on, she essentially became a TV guest player, rarely sticking around for more than a single performance on any given show. And though she retired from acting in 1974, she lived to the age of 94 and passed away in 1998 after spending her final years in the Florence Nightingale nursing home in Manhattan. Now strangely, the director James Sheldon didn't want her for the role of the robot grandmother, and in the Twilight Zone encyclopedia, Steve Rubin relays his comments. And Sheldon said, On I Sing the Body Electric, which was a great story by Ray Bradbury, I didn't agree with the casting of the robot, and I was never happy with that show, because she was all wrong for it, but they keep rerunning it all the time so I shut up. It was the only sour note in all the shows that I did for them. Now I am quite surprised by this because I think she's actually very good in it, and I think she has an old Hollywood quality to her that actually feeds into her performance as a robot. That polished old Hollywood acting style that preceded the more naturalistic acting style that would become the thing in the 70s. And I don't mean this as an insult to her in any way, but because early films and television were really only one step away from the stage at this point, there is more of a sense of performance, and I suppose artificiality, which is perfect for playing a robot that is human in so many ways, but is just ever so slightly artificial too. So while I do think there are problems with this episode, I certainly don't agree that Josephine Hutchinson was one of them. Now the central point of the story here is that one of the children, Anne, 
is struggling to come to terms with life without her mother. And of course, that leads on to coming to terms with accepting the new electric grandmother. I'm sorry about it, Ann. You've been good to us and for us. Now, don't worry about Ann. She'll accept me, eventually. You see, Mr. Rogers, children are the most complicated things in the world. I could be the greatest cook in the world, the finest, most exciting playmate, the most incredibly interesting companion. But those are very tiny niches, a shelf in the stomach, a small ledge in the brain. It's the heart I have to enter, the child's heart. And this is a deep place, difficult to reach. But that too will come. So this is the aspect of our lives that the episode is examining. The awful situation of a family where one parent has passed away. And to me, it's about that question of can another person come in if the remaining parent begins a new relationship? The incredible amount of confusing emotions that that brings up for the children. And these feelings would include a feeling of betrayal, feeling that they are betraying the parent who has died if they accept the step-parent, anger at the surviving parent for replacing the deceased parent. And these are just two examples of the multitude of emotions that will be flying around at that time. And the step-parent too, of course, is in a very difficult situation. They may come to it with love and patience, but when that is tested and tested and tested, does that run out? Well, with the electric grandmother, it won't run out. In the case of Anne, it seems that her fear is that she will get close to her new grandmother, but that she will leave or die. Anne! Get away! You're just old junk. And why do you hate me? Because you're like her. Your mother. I hate her. Why do you hate her, Anne? Because. Because? Because she lied. She said she loved me. Didn't she? She ran away. Ran away? She left me. You mean she died? You mean she died? Yes. So after this outburst, Anne runs out into the street and is almost hit by a truck. But grandmother pushes her out of the way. And we don't actually see, but we assume that she gets hit by the truck herself. But being a robot, she's just fine. And then they have this exchange. Grandma! Grandma, you're alive! Alive! Car. Nothing can hurt me. Then you're not like Mother? In this way, no. Can't run away? I can't. I won't. You'll never die? Never. Oh, Grandma. Uh, now, although we're not at the end of our story here, there is about five minutes of episode left, but with this scene, with the truck and the grandmother surviving, we have resolved the emotional conflict in the story. Anne was scared to get close to grandmother in case she left or died, but then Anne sees that she can't die, so this then allows her to get close to grandmother and accept her love. 
So all well and good in the Twilight Zone, but unfortunately, the real world wasn't so forgiving. Ray Bradbury was not happy with the episode, and all of the main Twilight Zone books document this in some way, but in Steve Rubin's Twilight Zone Encyclopedia, he writes this. Ray Bradbury was none too happy with the way this episode was produced, as he recalled to author Mark Phillips, I think the body electric turned out okay, but they took out the most important scene. In my script, the father asks the electric grandmother, why are there electric grandmothers? And she gives him a moment of truth. She can do something no mother ever can. She can pay attention to all of the children equally. Only a machine could do that. And since the father may never find a new wife, somebody has to look after the children. The electric grandmother is the substitute for the mother that isn't there. When I saw that this scene was cut from the episode, I was furious. I called Rod the next day and said, for God's sake, why didn't you tell me? He apologised and said that there hadn't been time to film it. I said, I had all of my friends come over to the house and we sat down to watch the show and the most important scene is gone. I don't want to work on your show anymore. I told him that I couldn't trust him as a producer. So if that is Bradbury's problem with the episode, I think we need to look at the other versions of the story to see how that is or isn't included. Now in 1982 there was a television movie made called The Electric Grandmother, starring Maureen Stapleton as the grandmother. But it is I Sing the Body Electric just in a longer format, it runs about 45 minutes, and I want to thank a friend of the show, Andrew, for making me aware of it. And Ray Bradbury is credited with the teleplay, along with another writer. And as far as I can tell, it's not just a story credit, it is a teleplay credit, so he had a hand in the writing. And the television movie, too, uses this device of having the child, this time called Agatha, almost being hit by a car, and the grandmother saving her. He's all right. But I don't think... Oh, oh, please. Oh, Oh, please. No, it's all right. It's all right. It's all right. No, no, it's all right. It's all right, Agatha. Not like mommy. No, no. Please not like mommy. Oh, no. No, dear, not like mommy. You're not? You're not? No. I can't die, you see. Then it wasn't a lie. What? When she said she'd never go away. You're not like her. Not like mom. No, dear. You'll always be here. Always. Cross my heart. No. Cross your heart. That was it all along, wasn't it? You thought I'd imitate your mommy and go away and never come back. Now you see, I can't be killed. I'll always be here when you need me. Now do you believe? Yes. Even when you and Tom and Timothy are old and childish and small again. I'll still be here for you. 
So if Bradbury has another shot at this on television, I would imagine that this scene being so important would be there. But the closest I can find is this one. I can't believe how the boys have changed since you've been here. <laughs> and so have you, if I can say so. Me? Well, I feel wonderful, it's true. Now, if I could only bring Agatha around. Oh, she's afraid. And that makes her angry. It's my task to discover the source of her fear. Hmm. That sounds so reasonable. Reasonable, as if I understood what that meant anymore. I'm talking to this machine as if she were a real woman. Often I feel you are a real woman. You know, sometimes I wonder what sort of a human being I am to be so much less understanding than a machine. Oh, now that's nonsense. I'm a machine. I'm made up of you and Tom and Timothy and Agatha and everything you ever say or ever do. I shall put away and treasure always. I'm so used to thinking of machines as cold and inhuman. Well, a machine is what it does. A good machine does good things. Bad machine does bad things. Could I have some clothespins, please? Mm -hmm. Thank you. See, I have time. Time for your children to tell me their dreams. To say what they want to be. And I shall run ahead on the path and help them be it. So it is addressing it to a degree, but it's not in that very explicit sense like Ray Bradbury was saying was missing from the Twilight Zone. Now if you look at the prose version, the written version, then the scene is definitely there. She went on around the table, clearing away, sorting and stacking, neither grossly humble nor arthritic with pride. What do I know? This above all, the trouble with most families with many children is someone gets lost. There isn't time, it seems, for everyone. Well, I will give equally to all of you. I will share out my knowledge and attention with everyone. I wish to be a great warm pie fresh from the oven, with equal shares to be taken by all. No one will starve. Look, someone cries and I'll look. Listen, someone cries and I hear. Run with me on the river path, someone says, and I run. And at dusk, I am not tired, nor irritable, so I do not scold out of some tired irritability. My eye stays clear, my voice strong, my hand firm, my attention constant. But, said Father, his voice fading, half convinced, but putting up a last faint argument, you're not there. As for love. If paying attention is love, I am love. If knowing is love, I am love. If helping you not to fall into error and to be good is love, I am love. And again, to repeat, there are four of you. Each in a way never before possible in history, will get my complete attention. No matter if you all speak at once, I can channel and hear this one and that amid the other, clearly. No one will go hungry. I will, if you please, and accept the strange word, love you all. 
So it's puzzling as to why Ray Bradbury didn't make sure that this scene was so explicitly included in the television version. And I want to thank Brandy Jacola for lending her voice to that part of the story. The TV version does touch upon these aspects. Why are there electric grandmothers? But not in some heavily profound speech that the grandmother gives. And to be honest, while I have some issues with I Sing the Body Electric, the Twilight Zone version, I still kinda got the gist of that part of the story. I don't think it was a major omission. So, is the television movie better than the Twilight Zone episode? I think I prefer the showroom scene in the Twilight Zone episode because it has that beautiful dark room and you could hypothesize that the showroom itself was a product of the Twilight Zone. But other than that, I think that yes, the television movie tells the story better. And the reason I was keeping track of the timing in the episode earlier on was that what the television movie has that the Twilight Zone lacks is time. Now the fabulistic story style of the best Twilight Zone episodes where things are pared down to their essence and told to us in such a way as to be deceptively simple is one of the great things about the show and it is one of Rod Serling's special talents. And by deceptively simple, I mean that Rod Serling makes it look easy sometimes, but it's not. Getting across to us these huge aspects of the human condition in such a graceful way where you almost absorb the message without realizing it is difficult to do. But maybe some things just can't be boiled down to a deceptively simple fabulistic message. Or at least, maybe Ray Bradbury couldn't boil it down to a deceptively simple fable. The Electric Grandmother TV movie works because when the grandmother turns up, the time that she talks about having for the children is also time that we all have with them as a viewer. This story, in whatever form it takes, is meant to tug on the heartstrings, and the Twilight Zone version is nice, but I think it struggles to do that for me, because the time that she spends with the children is about 10 minutes of screen time, and it's just not enough, and it even needs a rare mid-episode Rod Serling narration, the last one he did mid-episode, I believe, to try and get that attachment to hair across. As of this moment, the wonderful electric grandmother moved into the lives of children and father. She became integral and important. She became of the essence. As of this moment, they would never see lightning, never hear poetry read, never listen to foreign tongues without thinking of her. Everything they would ever see, hear, taste, feel would remind them of her. She was all life and all life was wondrous, quick, electrical. Thank you, Tom. So the episode that did get made, I sing the body electric. As a you know, as a, as a viewer of the Twilight Zone, as a fan of the Twilight Zone, what do you think of it? I think it has an emotional tone to it that is lacking in some of the other stories. Um, it's about tenderness and kindness that about the relationship between children and their parents, which is not always found in a lot of Serling's works, but in other writers. Uh -huh. um, Bradbury's strength is exactly that the emotional relationship we have with others 
It is not an intellectual exercise. It's not about moral obligation. It's about how we connect with other people on that parental level. Bradbury wrote one of the most powerful feminist pieces I've ever seen produced for television in the 1950s for an Alfred Hitchcock Presents called Shopping for Death. Uh-huh. Even when watching this today, I am amazed at how much someone is representing the female point of view from the 1950s and the sense of isolation and desperation that Serling did. And Alfred Hitchcock, in the introduction, acknowledges this is Ray Bradbury, who was not an everyday name then. He was a current author, Mm. and he had not reached the stature of Ray Bradbury then. So in the end, the children grow up and the grandmother goes back to the factory. And that is one exchange that I find to be quite fascinating. What's going to happen to you now, Grandma? Ah, I'll go back to facsimile the icing the body electric. And be sent out to help raise another family like yourselves. Or perhaps I'll be taken apart, redistributed. They won't destroy you. Oh, no, darling. My mind, my soul, you might say, will go for a while into a room of voices. A room of voices? A great dim room where the minds and souls of all the other mechanical grandmothers are brought and stored for a month or a year. And in that room, we'll talk to each other and we'll tell what we learned from the world and from the families we live with. And I'll tell what I learned from Anne and Karen, and Tom. When the grandmother talks of these things, it's this really interesting melding of technology and spirituality. She is essentially talking about uploading her electronic consciousness to a server, but to her, it's like this celestial, almost heavenly place where she melds with other consciousnesses to maybe one day be reincarnated or in real world terms have a program re-downloaded for use again. Now in the television movie version this is a lot less ethereal. The grandmother literally just goes and sits in a room with several other electric grandmothers. So if I think on that's actually something that I prefer in the Twilight Zone version too but we never actually see it or get representation of it. So while grandmother gets her consciousness uploaded, we'll leave her there for now while we reflect on the story itself and what went wrong. Now I know that this is a beloved episode to some and you might say, well, it seems fine to me as far as I'm concerned, nothing went wrong and that's great. If this is an episode that sits in the top tier of Twilight Zone for you or has some personal significance, I can see how that could be the case and I'm glad that it is, but in real world terms this was a troubled production, not just for the reason of Ray Bradbury not liking it, and as we mentioned earlier, there are two directors on it for that very reason. In the Twilight Zone companion Buck Houghton said, We did retakes, we practically did that over, it just didn't work. The first thing was done in October of 61 and the next one was done in February of 62, and it was damn near a full redo. 
Aunt Nedra was played by June Vincent in the original and Doris Packer in the second. It just wasn't an acceptable picture, and so we rewrote. I guess Jim Sheldon wasn't available. Normally, I'd have called him back. Now, the road to actually getting I Sing the Body Electric to the screen was never simple from day one. So when we think about this troubled production where they've had to redo it, it almost seems that getting I Sing the Body Electric into the Twilight Zone was almost like hammering a round peg into a square hole, because when we look back at it actually getting there, there are so many things along the way that meant that maybe they just shouldn't do it anyway. Martin Grams Jr. documents that Ray Bradbury sent sailing the teleplay for I Sing the Body Electric on March 15th, 1959, and he says to Sailing, be brutal to me about it. I'm one of the few writers in the world with a rhino skin. Call me at HHL when you've had a chance to digest this and we'll set up a date for lunch. And on May 18th, 1959, Sailing returned the teleplay with a heartwarming and respectful rejection. I'm returning I Sing the Body Electric, which you'll very likely have use for yourself. I rather imagine that if you use it, you'll make me very sorry as hell I didn't grab it when it was available. So even early on there was echoes that I Sing the Body Electric wasn't quite right for the Twilight Zone, and Martin Grams Jr. goes on that Bradbury revised his 1959 draft and resubmitted it again, but sailing in one letter to Buck Houghton, confessed that it needed more work and he had no heart to personally alter revise or improve on a master's privilege. And when it was filmed and Buck Houghton and Rod Sailing noticed that it just wasn't working, they then had to make the decision to refilm it and add extra footage. And Ray Bradbury said in the television column, I'm not sure how this Twilight Zone will turn out. It was shot six months ago. Then just recently it was necessary to reshoot some of it. And they called me only the day before to do the rewriting. I was exhausted from working on a new novel and told producer Buck Houghton he'd have to get somebody else to do it. And James Sheldon, the original director in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic says, This happened a number of times on The Twilight Zone. It was common for the rough cut to be viewed and decisions made after. When they decided shots should be inserted or additional scenes needed to pick up the film, they would turn to whoever was directing an episode that day and ask them to film a number of inserts. They would ask the current director, because oftentimes the initial director would have been off doing something else. Regarding the Ray Bradbury story, it was not my choice. I complained about the script before we began shooting. I did not like what they gave me, and there was little to work with. After they saw what we filmed, it was apparent they agreed with me and decided to reshoot some of the scenes but I was elsewhere doing another project, so they got someone else. So again, we're seeing this thing that Sailing was never initially happy with the story, James Sheldon was never happy with the story, Sailing was never really happy with it even after it was rewrote, but he kind of just went with it in deference to Ray Bradbury. And in May of 1969, he says something that I think is actually key to all of this. And Martin Grams Jr. documents it again, and it says, As to my attitude toward Bradbury's work, needless to say, 
I'm an admirer, a deep admirer. I have found, however, that he is much more effective on the page than he is on the proscenium. The lyrical quality of his work seems to lend itself to the printed page rather than to spoken language. In the case of I Sing the Body Electric, the words that seemed so beautiful in the story turned out archaic and wooden and somehow unbelievable when a person speaks them. But this of course is one man's opinion and it's hardly engraved on rock. So that is very key for me because I do feel that yes, on paper, Ray Bradbury is the perfect person to come in and help with the Twilight Zone. But sometimes things just don't fit. And it seems to me that maybe Rod Serling eventually realized that. And when he saw what Ray Bradbury was bringing to him, bringing to the Twilight Zone, he probably realized that it didn't fit. But now he's in this awful situation where he needs to say to this leading light of science fiction, actually, your stories aren't right for my show. But he is in this awkward position, so eventually they use I Sing the Body Electric. And I also feel that the use or lack of use of that scene where the electric grandmother speaks about having time for all the children that Ray Bradbury got so incensed about is actually quite key as well. Now Rod Serling omitted it from the Twilight Zone, and then he told Ray Bradbury that they didn't have time to film it. So was he just being diplomatic here? Because in that comment, Rod Serling said, on the page, Ray Bradbury is very lyrical, very beautiful, and it works. But when you try and speak it, it just doesn't seem natural. So is that the reason why that scene was omitted from the Twilight Zone? Because then, when Ray Bradbury does a prose version of it, he puts that scene back in. And Brandy Jacola did a beautiful reading of that scene, but if you go back and listen to it, the language, the way it's said, Brandy performed it beautifully, but she is reading the prose version, she is reading from the book. But can you imagine a person in general conversation speaking and saying those words? If you put it that way, it's harder to take. So Bradbury put that scene back in for the prose version, but then in the 80s, when he adapted it again for television, that scene is gone. So did Ray Bradbury or whoever was working on that show also think, actually, this scene just doesn't work when someone stands and says it. Now that is just all supposition on my part. It is guesswork and I'm just basing that on what I see in front of me, but it certainly makes sense to me when you put it that way. You interviewed Ray. Yes. Tell us about that interaction. How, how did you find him? I will always be grateful that Ray Bradbury greeted me warmly mm -hmm. and allowed me to his home and then later gave me access to his archives. Um, the nicest story I can say about Ray Bradbury is when I interviewed him, I had a copy of Fahrenheit 451 from high school that was dog-eared and had pencil marks and was pages <laughs> fold over. And when he went to sign the books, I had a brand new hardcover copy of Fahrenheit where the case had not even cracked. Yeah. And Ray Bradbury pointed to my paperback and said, I prefer that one. Brilliant. Because he knew this hardcover book would never be read. It was going to sit on a shelf and collect dust. 
Ray Bradbury was gracious. He, when I pointed out I had a letter that disagreed, actually contradicted his claim of plagiarism, his response was that I was to give it to Sam Weller, and then he would respond, Sam Weller would tell me what Ray Bradbury's response was. And I explained to Mr. Bradbury, as politely as possible, I couldn't do that. I was looking for Mr. Bradbury's response, not Sam Weller's. Right. It was giving Mr. Weller my homework. I had done the research, I had found the letter, and I wanted Mr. Bradbury to respond to that, not Sam Weller. This was a sort of very private feud, if you like, but uh, and eventually things would leak out here and there. But, you know, Sailing does make some comments later on about the adaptability of Ray Bradbury's work after they fell out. And I get the feeling that Bradbury and the Twilight Zone were both great in their own way, but maybe they were just incompatible. And it almost seems that Rod Sailing felt that way as well, and it, it maybe put him in an awkward position. What What do you think of that? The unfortunate thing is, Serling had written in college and then in early radio, he had written science fiction, he had written fantasy. The first rejection letter we have that was written to Rod Serling says this is fantasy, which we do not find commercially viable. Uh-huh. So Bradbury did not know that Sterling had a background writing fantasy and science fiction. He was considered a dramatist that dealt with very existential issues and power and relationships. So when Sterling starts writing The Twilight Zone, Ray Bradbury feels as if I I am conjecturing. Mm. That Bradbury feel, does not know that Sterling has this deep well of background of this type of writing and is now accusing Serling of stepping on his toes. Right. So, and then you have Bradbury, who in 1957 had signed a contract and was going to have his own TV show at the same time. Mm -hmm. And that fell apart. And while we think of Bradbury as being political because of Fahrenheit 451, Bradbury is not a political writer, and Serling is. Mm. Bradbury wrote about censorship, and it's absolutely, and I disagree with Mr. Bradbury again, that Fahrenheit 451 is about censorship. It does have to do with the McCarthy hearings and all of that time period. Right. And so then you have Serling, who is not an emotional writer, so they're, they're running parallel tracks, but different. And they're being political about I sing the body electric. Mm. And, and I would argue that there's and not all Twilight Zones are political or existentialist, but in this case, it stands out as being sentimental and not about the human condition in the outer world. It's about the inner world of emotion. I like to think that after all these years of doing the show, I at least have a sense of Rod Serling and the man he was. I have no such insights into Ray Bradbury simply because I don't know enough. Now if you go to Mark Zickrey's last interview on this show that my friend Brandon did, he says that Ray Bradbury's philosophy was that the answer to everything is love. So it's quite hard to take when you read or hear the vigour with which he goes after sailing about the plagiarism matter. And if you check out Jason and Sonny Brock's documentary, the way he talks about Rod Sailing is very disappointing, 
and he is a very old man at this point, clearly he has health issues and he's struggling, but I do remember watching that and being quite dismayed by this situation. Now I'm not here to demonise Ray Bradbury, but I do feel that the values that we all associate with Rod Serling would have precluded him from plagiarising Ray Bradbury's work. Now throughout the Twilight Zone we have heard these accusations from people other than Bradbury, and when we actually hold the work up to the light and have a look at it, we realise how unfounded the accusations tend to be. And we've also heard of Rod Sailing closing down the open submission policy on the Twilight Zone to guard against accusations of plagiarism. So to plagiarise arguably one of the most famous science fiction writers in the world at that point doesn't really make sense. Now another friend, Andrew Schneider, wrote to me before I put this episode together and he made me aware of The Electric Grandmother, but he also made me aware of another instance where Bradbury was very vocal about an adaptation of his work. And Andrew writes, I will note that The Twilight Zone wasn't the last time Bradbury savaged the final TV production of one of his own scripts. Bradbury co-wrote the scripts for a three-part miniseries adaptation of his book, The Martian Chronicles, which aired in 1980, and his co-screenwriter was Richard Matheson. And Andrew goes on, the following is from the IMDB trivia section on that miniseries. Full disclosure, I wrote this entry, though I've long since forgotten the original source of the information. And he writes, the miniseries was originally scheduled for release in September 1979 as a major kickoff to the 1979-80 season. Unfortunately, it fell victim to some negative publicity from Ray Bradbury himself. Although Bradbury had worked with scriptwriter Richard Matheson in adapting his book to the small screen, he was less than thrilled with the final production. At one point, Shortly before the miniseries scheduled release, Bradbury found himself the sole representative of the production at a press conference. When one reporter asked him what he thought of the miniseries, he responded candidly, boring. NBC soon shelved the miniseries and did not air it until January 1980. Now I admire Ray Bradbury's honesty there, I admire the fact that he hasn't just sugarcoated it because it's his work and he didn't like the adaptation, so he said it. But it's also indicative of the fact that Ray Bradbury did seem to have quite a temper on him at times. And what I also found to be a little troublesome is that there are two stories in the 80s Twilight Zone based on Bradbury short stories, and one of them, The Burning Man, was adapted by a writer and director called J.D. Fagelson. And although Bradbury wasn't directly involved in the production of it, he most definitely approved of it. And on the website bradburymedia.co.uk, there is a quote from 1986 where he says, It was very good. It was written and directed by a friend of mine. I got him the job. I fought for him. He did the script, and I told the people at the Twilight Zone that I wanted him to direct it. And I was in New York on my way to Europe when he called me. They don't want me to direct, he said. I'll just back off. I said, I only sold them the script so you could do it. So get the hell off the phone and go tell them you're going to direct it or else. That's the end. You've got to fight for yourself. 
He called me back an hour later and said, I got it. And I said, thank God I screamed at you. You've got to believe in yourself. He called me many times afterward to thank me for being firm, so he knows what friendship is. Now also on that same page, it says, Fagelson has known Bradbury for nearly 30 years and says that Bradbury taught him writing. I had met him through a PBS film that I did, a Civil War movie by Ambrose Bierce. A mutual friend had suggested that I show it to Ray, and he offered to mentor me, and still does actually. And Fagel's use of the Burning Man story came about through his attempt to develop and sell a different anthology series of his own called Strange Dimensions, and Bradbury offered him the Burning Man to adapt. So although Strange Dimensions never came to be, Fagelson sent his scripts to James Crocker who was producing The New Twilight Zone. And Alan Brennett, who was story editor of The New Twilight Zone, said that the script had theatrical dialogue that no one ever speaks outside of a Ray Bradbury story. So that kind of backs up Rod Serling's take on the adaptability of Ray Bradbury's work. And also Fagelson said on that site, what I did with Ray's approval was cut out dialogue that went on longer than it needed to establish whatever effect it was supposed to do. It was more of an editing job as well as putting it into teleplay form. Now Bradbury was very happy with this adaptation of The Burning Man and clearly Fagelson has looked for his approval on any cuts to dialogue. So it does suggest that Bradbury is very protective and sensitive to changes to his work for the screen. And of course he has the right as the creator of the work. But also in the 80s Twilight Zone is a story called The Elevator that, from what I can tell, was actually written by Ray Bradbury based on one of his own unproduced short stories. Now the reason that I mention these is that I find it quite troubling to be honest because by the time the 80s Twilight Zone came around, Rod Serling had passed away. But regardless of this, the Twilight Zone is his show. The 80s Twilight Zone is his show. The 2000s Twilight Zone is his show and so is the latest version. Yes, the creators are different, but they are playing in his sandbox. So for Ray Bradbury to be attacking Sailing's character in one breath, but then to come back to his show after he has passed away, that doesn't quite sit right with me. Because had it been a gesture of posthumous reconciliation, perhaps I would be more accepting of it. But Bradbury continued to make these occasional comments about sailing after these adaptations. What's your assessment of the whole thing? You know, did Bradbury genuinely feel that sailing was a plagiarist or was there more to it than that? I think Bradbury genuinely felt slighted. Um, there's, I have no doubt about that. I think Bradbury always felt he never got his due until later in life. Bradbury wanted to also raise up other writers. And he was acknowledged by other writers as having influenced George Clayton Johnson, Beaumont, Richard Matheson. All of them adored Bradbury. Mm. And they adored Rod Serling but for different reasons. And I think a lot of them had it tipped over their relationship between them. Ray Bradbury liked his name being on the front of things. Rod Serling 
even though Serling believed it being in front of the camera was, was just as important as some senators, Serling didn't stamp his name on projects the way Bradbury did. Mm-hmm. Um, he was an important name, but he wasn't the headliner. Bradbury always wanted to be the headliner. And I think that was a large conflict as well, was you had two competing egos, and Bradbury later in life did not want to have to share his name. One more thing I'd like to mention is that in the 1980s, Scott Zekri, when he was rounding out all the writers and actors he could find for The Twilight Zone, for The Twilight Zone Companion, he asked Ray Bradbury about plagiarism, and Bradbury is quoted as saying, I would prefer not to write or talk much about The Twilight Zone or my stories. The series is over and done. My work stands on its own. You know, one thing that... I always, I found it maybe a little insulting was that after sailing had passed, Ray Bradbury had stories in the 80s Twilight Zone. It always felt a bit wrong that if he had such a um, such malice towards sailing that he would then go into the 80s version of the show, you know? I agree. And I wish it had been full disclosure and not a bit of ego trampling and because Bradbury outlives Serling, I find it unfortunate that Bradbury gets the last say. Mm. And we're not looking at the actual documents from then when Serling did have the right to speak. Serling fought this. There's no higher insult to a writer than to say plagiarism. I'd like to thank Amy Boyle Johnston for once again coming back to the show to to share her knowledge and insight, and if you want to read more about this situation, then check out her book, Unknown Sailing. And I just want to finish up with a couple of quotes from a couple of authors. One of them is Amy Ball Johnston, and in her book, she's talking about Ray Bradbury's biography and the biographer. And she says, in some sections of the book, Weller uses Bradbury's files to back up his various insights into the man, In other areas of the book, Weller relies solely on the memories of Bradbury and often refers to Bradbury by his first name as if they are friends, not researcher and subject. Herein lies the problem. The role of a biographer, authorised or not, is primarily that of a researcher. Memories are not fact. Memories change over time. The biographer must explore the events independently and clarify memories by using documents and the accounts of others to explore any contradictions between written and verbal interpretations. A biographer should never rely solely on an interview with one person, as Weller did concerning the accusation of plagiarism, the worst allegation a writer can face. The fault here lies with Weller, not Bradbury. And I'd also like to read a quote from the Karen Shadmi graphic novel in his summing up at the end of it. And he talks about his research for doing that book. And he says, so here I am three years later and I feel like I have to say goodbye to a friend. I take down some reference shots of sailing from my studio wall and suddenly I feel sad. I didn't know him. In fact, he died before I was even born. But there was something about his work that struck a chord with me. And he goes on, It's time for me to say goodbye to the friend I never knew. I agree with Amy's point on this, but thankfully for me, while this show is in part review and sometimes biography, 
More than anything else, it's my Twilight Zone journey in audio form, so I'm not bound by those rules, but Karen Shadmi's description is as good a description of my own journey into the work of Rod Sailing in the Twilight Zone itself. On the one hand, it is a review, an examination of what's on screen and the facts behind it, but as it's gone on, it has become a kind of quest to get closer to Rod Sailing the man as well. And it is an impossible quest, because I'll never get to shake him by the hand and talk to him face to face, because he is the friend that I'll never have. But the journey is worth it regardless. So in the case of Bradbury versus Sailing, I'm going to go with my friend on this one. Which makes it a kind of bittersweet thing to finally get to this point in the Twilight Zone, where Ray Bradbury makes his entrance, and then his exit, and then to find that it's not an episode that I particularly have a great fondness for anyway. It's not bad, but it sits firmly on the mid-tier for me. I don't think it quite packs the emotional punch that it was meant to, the punch that its later television version does have. But the story does have something, But overall, it's an illustration of something that I've thought often. You can have the best science fiction story in the world, but it doesn't make a good Twilight Zone. And you can have the best science fiction writer in the world, but it doesn't mean that he can write the Twilight Zone either. And for me, while I think this is a nice story, and it is a good story, it doesn't quite feel like the Twilight Zone to me. But in all of the negativity that we've had to go through, in this episode, I would like to end on a positive note. Because while this one doesn't quite work for me, I can see how it could be very important to other people. Its message is a good one, and the struggle with grief and then acceptance of love following loss is at its core very accurate too. It tells us that parenthood or guidance sometimes comes from other places, and I think this is one for the foster carers, for the step-parents, for the adoptive parents, the people who give love, not because they're tied by blood, but because they have that love in them to give, and there's someone there who needs it. And it is a struggle, because those relationships are not always easy, and the person who they want to show that love to is not always welcoming of it. So while it might not be a twilight zone for me, It is a twilight zone for them. A fable, most assuredly. But who's to say at some distant moment there might be an assembly line producing a gentle product in the form of a grandmother? Whose stock in trade is love? Fable, sure. But who's to say? And now, Mr. Serling. Next week on The Twilight Zone, two incredibly talented people join forces to show us what happens when an accident-prone, discombobulated lady with six thumbs and two left feet meets a hapless guardian angel who knows more about martinis than miracles. Miss Carol Burnett and Mr. Jesse White. They're the chief ingredients to a very funny stew. Next week, Cavender is coming.
America to flower spiritually and intellectually, we need more and better college facilities. Help the college of your choice.